Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And one of the greatest things about technology, in my opinion, is that it's always evolving. However, that does make covering technology somewhat challenging or perhaps frustrating or infuriating, particularly if you try to do an evergreen-style show like Tech Stuff. Ideally, an episode of Tech Stuff goes out and you should be able to listen to it today, next week, two years from now. But sometimes stories will update you know, they'll, they'll continue. More things will happen between the time I record a show and even when it goes live sometimes. So this episode is all about giving updates to various stories I've mentioned in previous episodes of Tech Stuff, but mostly these are updates that are too short to merit a full episode on their own. So let's get started. And I've done several episodes on the concept of net neutrality, uh, including ones about the FCC reclassifying the internet service providers as common carriers and the various campaigns for and against the whole idea of mandating net neutrality. So if you aren't familiar with the concept, net neutrality, it, it encompasses several things. But one of the things it says is that all traffic on the internet should be treated equally. Whether that is data that belongs originally to the internet service provider, let's say that they also own some other services, or it's to a competitor, all of that data should be able to travel across the, the internet without any sort of interference or preferential treatment or uh, negative treatment in the case of a competitor's services. It should all just go, no matter what device you have connected to the internet, and no matter what service you connect to, it should be treated equally. Well, in early June 2018, the FCC repealed the previously established net neutrality rules, and those rules include restrictions on internet service providers such as being able to give preferential treatment to certain types of web traffic over others or charging more for different types of content. So in other words, these rules were meant to keep ISPs from being able to serve up their own services on a fast track while potentially slowing down or charging more or both for competing services. So as an example, imagine you have an internet service provider, let's call it Bombast, and it has its own streaming video service. And you can watch certain films and certain television shows using that service. The ISP might make the service free, to anyone who is a subscriber to that internet service provider. So you're already a Bombast customer. You get those services for free. And not only that, but they serve up those videos on a fast track, right? They're using a lot of bandwidth to get that stuff to you. And that way, on your side, there's no buffering. There's no delays. It's a, it's a good user experience. However, that same ISP then puts the brakes on competing services like Netflix so that you, as a Bombast customer, have a less user-friendly experience when you try to use Netflix. Everything takes forever to load. You might even have to pay extra just to be able to access the Netflix service. Under the previous net neutrality rules, that would be a big no-no, but now those rules are gone. Several states in the United States have introduced bills that are intended to act as a type of net neutrality on the state level, but that's kind of a haphazard way to go about it because not every state is proposing such legislation. A little more than half of the states in the U.S. have some form of legislation either passed or in the process. 
And there's no guarantee that the bills that have been proposed will be passed in all the states that have taken up the slack. Meanwhile, the U.S. Senate voted to reverse the FCC repeal, and it passed in the Senate. However, in the United States, we have not just the Senate, we also have the House of Representatives. And in the House, the measure did not see the same momentum. They needed 218 representatives to agree to vote on that bill, just to, just to have a vote for it. And every Democrat representative signed the petition for this, but it was still more than 40 signatures short of getting the measure to the voting floor, at least as of the recording of this podcast. So net neutrality currently in the United States is a, uh, a, a dead concept at the federal level. The FCC is now pushing that over to the Federal Trade Commission and saying this belongs to them, not to us. They'll make sure that no anti-competitive monopolistic behaviors happen across the internet. Uh, meanwhile, critics of this say that fat chance, like th this was our best way of making certain that users had a fair shake. So there's a lot of rhetoric on both sides of this issue, and it continues to be a big issue in the U.S. Recently, I also did some episodes giving an update on what Microsoft has been up to since 2013. One of the things I mentioned was a dual touchscreen device called Andromeda. Well, on July 2nd, 2018, I saw an article stating that the dual panel mobile device running the Andromeda OS has been put on hold. So again, just after I published this Microsoft update, they go and do this. But what's really going on? Well, one thing I did not mention in the update episodes for Microsoft is that back in 2015, Microsoft was calling Windows 10 the last version of Windows. Now, that was not to say that the company would release Windows 10, then brush its hands off and walk away whistling merrily. Instead, Windows was meant to evolve, almost like it's a service on demand. So not your, your traditional operating system where you would pay for an update or you would get a regular update. It's the foundation. Windows 10 is a foundation for the service of an operating system, and, and Microsoft would continue to support it and update it with new features as time goes on. But there would be no Windows 11. There would just be updates to Windows 10 that would roll on out to users. One of those updates, which is scheduled for the fall of 2018, is codenamed Redstone 5. And what was supposed to happen was that the Andromeda operating system, the mobile version of Windows that was going to run on this upcoming dual touchscreen foldable mobile device, it would be included in that update to Windows 10. So you would have this interoperability between the full build of Windows for desktops and PCs and laptops, that kind of thing, and the mobile version that would exist on the Andromeda device. The Andromeda phone, or mobile device, I should call it, was rumored to have cellular technology built into it but not necessarily in a way that was made to make it a competitor with iOS or Android. So in other words, calling it a mobile device is more accurate than a phone. It might have had cellular technology built into it, but it was really meant to increase the device's functionality, allowing you to connect to the internet whether you had Wi-Fi access or not. So could you make calls on it? Well, you might be able to use a service like Skype, which Microsoft owns, and make a call through that but it wasn't necessarily meant to act as a smartphone. It was more like a device that could also make calls. But as it turns out, it's all a moot point. In the spring, Microsoft shook up the mobile division with another reorganization. 
and the company reevaluated its strategy. The elements of Andromeda OS either did not align with this new strategy or they weren't ready to go, but either way, they are not going to be part of the Redstone 5 update and the development has been shelved possibly forever. And some folks, like ZDNet's Mary Jo Foley, have pointed out this might not be a bad idea. The Andromeda was rumored to only be able to run Microsoft Store apps, which limited its utility considerably. Foley cites sources that say Microsoft may still try to develop a multi-screen device running a build of Windows in the future, but that it might more closely resemble a laptop in form factor rather than a handheld device. Back on May 22nd, 2018, I published an episode about Project Maven, which focused on incorporating elements of artificial intelligence in a drone program for the military. Google had been involved in that project and faced criticism both from within and from outside the company about its involvement. On June 1st, 2018, several headlines reported Google would not renew the Project Maven contract. According to Google employees, the CEO of Google Cloud, Diane Green, addressed the company and announced that once the current contract is over, Google will not seek a renewal. And as a reminder, Google had maintained that its work on the project focused solely on non-aggressive technologies and open-source software. But emails from within Google showed that executives were really eager to land lucrative contracts with the Pentagon to provide services like machine learning, which could then be used to support surveillance efforts. Presumably, that same technology might in the future be used to create autonomous or semi-autonomous weapons platforms. So while Google might have the plausible deniability of saying, our work was just to help with identifying places and people and activity. It wasn't meant to be used in, in direct combat applications. You could argue, well, with some small adaptation, you could make that technology uh, more of a, a weapons platform. So it's it, to me, it's one of those kind of weak arguments. Uh, it's a moot point, though. Google has now backed away from that contract. The dramatic Bitcoin roller coaster story continues today. In 2017, the cryptocurrency hit an all time high of nearly $20,000 per Bitcoin. That was toward the end of 2017. Now, remember, Bitcoin is a digital currency that can be divided up into much smaller subunits. After reaching those incredible highs, the currency has slumped quite a bit. At the end of June 2018, the value dipped below $6,000 per Bitcoin, which is still, you know, pretty. Pretty high, but it's a huge drop from that 20 grand it enjoyed back in December 2017. And as I research these updates, Bitcoin is in another bit of an upswing. It's recovered to above $6,000 again. Like it dropped down to about 5,800. Now it's back above 6,000. But cryptocurrencies in general have had a really rough time of it recently. The Japanese government passed some strict laws to try and eliminate the use of cryptocurrencies in money laundering exploits. And some high-profile digital currency exchanges have been hacked recently. These sort of events have really hurt cryptocurrencies in general. Just like all currencies, their value rests partly on perception. If we believe them to have value, they have value. And if everyone just woke up one morning and said, wait a minute, that's actually worthless, it would in fact be worthless because no one would accept the currency for anything. So it's only our, our belief that it it's worth anything that makes it worth anything. Now, this is true for any currency. It's 
you have the the assurance of most currencies that have a bank or government behind them that they are backing the value of that. But ultimately, it's just that we all agree that it's worth something. If we all woke up and said, oh, you know what, this paper money really isn't, you can't really do anything with it. It's not really, it doesn't have any real worth to it. Then the currency could collapse if everybody did it. Now, the funny thing is that as I research this, I'm aware that this story could actually be totally different by the time the updates go live, which is how crazy and volatile Bitcoin tends to be. And it also means that I may have to do an update to my updates episode. The irony is not lost upon me. While I wallow in some self-pity as I think about this, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Back at the beginning of 2018, I did three episodes about YouTube's history, and that also deserves a bit of an update. Now, just as I was working on the YouTube episodes, the company was getting ready to roll out some major changes to its partner platform. The YouTube partner pl program is it's the platform that creators can use to monetize their videos. And essentially, it allows channel owners to elect to have ads served against their videos. YouTube gets a cut and the video owner gets the rest. So if you have a really popular channel with videos that get a lot of views, you can stand to make some decent money from advertising. But in the spring of 2017, YouTube was trying to deal with a really controversial problem. Some users had been uploading videos that featured hateful content. There could be racist content, misogynist content, other forms of hate speech. And some of those users were YouTube partners. They had a large following and they had ads served up against their videos. And advertisers were not too keen to have their brands associated with someone who was spouting off hateful garbage. So YouTube's response was to create a new algorithm that attempted to flag videos that might have problematic content in them and then demonetize those videos, essentially flip the switch off so that ads would no longer be served against those videos. And no matter how many views such a video would get, it would never earn any money for the creator. Now, I personally do not have a problem with YouTube demonetizing videos that advocate for violence or spout off hateful things. YouTube is a company, they have the right to do that, and I don't see a problem with cutting off this, especially considering that the business side of it is that YouTube has to work with the advertisers too. And not a lot of advertisers are too eager to have their brand associated with that kind of stuff. However, the algorithm affected a much broader spectrum of videos, including educational videos, advocacy videos, news-oriented videos covering topics like racism in a newsworthy way. Some of these videos were getting tagged as being inappropriate, even when there was no real inappropriate content in them. Creators began to refer to it as the adpocalypse. YouTube had swung hard in an effort to keep major advertisers on the platform because there were a lot of big ones that were threatening to leave. The alternative was losing some of those valuable clients. And we're talking big companies like auto companies and major retailers. However, in the process of trying to mollify these major companies, the creators who were actually making the content that ads were getting served up against were hurting. So YouTube adjusted the algorithm in the fall of 2017 to try and correct some of these problems, kind of a course correction. 
And the company noted that no fix was ever going to be perfect, and there would be some instances that would have to be handled on a case-by-case basis, where someone might see that a video they've uploaded has suddenly been flagged as being demonetized, and you would have to take it up to YouTube and say, I really don't think that this should count, and here are my reasons why, and could you give me an explanation as to why my video has been demonetized and what I can do to fix this? Of course, the problem is, during this time, you're not making any money off views that are coming to that video. And you might eventually get monetized again. Let's say that YouTube says, oh, you're right, that was completely on us. The algorithm was overzealous. Let's fix this. It is monetized. We flip the switch. You're good to go. Yeah, you're good to go from that point forward. But all views that had happened before then don't count because no ads were served against your video at that time. And the way videos tend to work, I mean, there are long tail videos that will get views months and months and months after they go live. I had a video go viral nine months after it was published on YouTube. So there are those cases, but a lot of videos, it's the first couple of days, maybe the first week where they get the majority of their views. So if it takes too long to monetize a video again, that's lost revenue. Anyway, now we're back up to January of 2018. That was when I was actually publishing the episodes about YouTube. Up to that time, to qualify for the partner platform, your YouTube channel would need to have accrued at least 10,000 views across however many videos you had. If you had one video that did great and you had 10,000 views on it, that counted. If you had 1,000 videos and each one got 10 views, that counted too. Uh, Although you would still be under review about whether or not you join the partner platform. But the overhaul ended up changing all of that anyway. Now, to be a partner on YouTube, you have to have at least 1,000 subscribers to your channel, and you have to have at least 4,000 hours of watch time over a 12-month period across all your videos. That's somewhat problematic, because if you're a creator who specializes in short-form videos, you might end up having lots of views, but still end up on the short end of total accumulated view time. Because let's say that I make a crazy popular video series, but each of those videos is about three minutes long. And let's say that I'm doing it maybe once a week. I have to go for a long time and and hope for really, really big audience reach to reach that 4,000 hours of total view time. People have to watch tons of my videos. I might have to step up production and start publishing much more frequently to get to that 4,000 hours of total view time within 12 months. So if I make really good longer form content, I could hit that number with fewer actual viewers, right? If each of my videos is like an hour long and it's really, really good and people tend to watch for the majority of the video, I'll hit that 4,000 hour number way faster. Now, YouTube says that if you're uploading videos four or five times a week and you have about a thousand subscribers, it shouldn't be too hard to hit that 4,000 hours of viewed content, but your mileage may vary. For those who have actually met those requirements, some of them have found the new approval process to take a really long time. In April 2018, the CEO of YouTube said that the company would launch a pilot program in which creators could provide more feedback about video content in an effort to help YouTube find appropriate advertiser matches and potentially sidestep false positive or flip-flopping issues where an ad gets monetized and then demonetized and back again multiple times. So in other words, let's say that you're making a comedy series. And let's say it's a little raunchy, not outside of YouTube's rules and regulations. You're, You're still well within that. 
but maybe it's a little bit more on the rowdy side than your typical video might be. That might mean that certain advertisers wouldn't want to be associated with you, but other advertisers might be perfectly fine. And this process would allow you a way to tell YouTube, here's what my video series has in it. Here are the potentially problematic points. Uh, so can you find advertisers that are okay to work with my particular content? And then YouTube will match the two up. This benefits everybody. It benefits the advertiser, it benefits the creator, and ultimately it benefits YouTube. YouTube only is making money when those ads are being served against other content, uh, on, uh, setting aside subscriber models and all that kind of stuff. So in other words, this is supposed to be the solution for everybody. The problem is it hasn't yet been really formulated. In June, YouTube rolled out some more features such as channel membership model. Uh, this is where creators who are partners can create a membership channel and charge users $4.99 a month to access special members-only content, including video streams and emojis. If this sounds familiar, it's because it's pretty much what Twitch does with live streaming. With Twitch, you can be a subscriber and you can get... Uh, special material through your subscription, and creators with 10,000 subscribers can sell merchandise directly from their channels through a company called Teespring, but Teespring also takes a pretty healthy cut of all sales, so you only get a portion of those sales, which makes sense. I mean, it's Teespring that's supplying the actual material, but still. Uh, so some people say that these, these moves on YouTube's part to cr try and create new revenue streams for content creators it's still not really on the right track. One last bit about the YouTube updates. YouTube recently posted an apology on Twitter to the LGBTQ community regarding how its algorithm unfairly demonetized people in that community. You know, creators in the LGBTQ community who had uploaded videos to their YouTube channels started seeing their videos demonetized at a much higher rate, um, even though they were treating the subject matter with respect. They were not being racist or uh, misogynistic or using hate speech. They were treating real issues and they were seeing their videos get demonetized. And they said, well, this is kind of discrimination. And not only that, but some of their content got paired with ads that actually ran with homophobic language. Uh, ads that were viewing, that were essentially from, from organizations that view uh, homosexuality as a sin or as something that is immoral. And so this was like a, a real slap in the face. Not only were a lot of these videos getting demonetized, the ones that weren't demonetized were getting paired with ads that outright said the person who created the content was bad in some way. The tweet said the company had taken action on those ads and would tighten enforcement on its policies which I'm sure a lot of people appreciate, but it's still, you know, it's it's not a great thing to have to apologize for. Back in 2014, so this is going back quite a ways, I did a couple of episodes about the automotive company Tesla, and a lot has happened since 2014. I could probably do a full update episode, but I'm, I want to concentrate on just a couple of little things. Uh, in fact, one of the things that happened since then was uh, some various incidents involving Tesla's driver assist features, which the company referred to as autopilot, a term that I really didn't care for. But I did a full episode about that. Scott Benjamin joined me in 2016 to talk about that. But so rather focus on those tragic stories 
I thought I'd mention that just a few days before I came in to record this episode, Tesla hit a milestone it had been striving toward, and that was to produce at least 5,000 Model 3 Tesla electric cars in a week in its manufacturing facilities. The Model 3 is Tesla's sports sedan that's supposed to be in the more affordable range. But affordable is means different things to different people. The prices on the low end start at $36,000. The company unveiled the Model 3 in 2016, and they were taking pre-orders and reservations for the vehicle for quite some time. At one point, the company had more than 500,000 pre-orders, 518,000, I believe, for the Model 3. But over time, they lost thousands. Uh, they were down to 420,000 reservations in June 2018. Elon Musk had claimed the company would hit 10,000 cars produced per week at some point in 2018, which I guess could still happen, but they just hit 5,000, and it's July 2018 now. But the 5,000 vehicle per week milestone still is a really big one, even though Wall Street wasn't as impressed. Now, to be fair, the expectation was that by the end of the quarter that ended in June 2018, Tesla would have delivered 51,000 vehicles across all of its models for that fiscal year. But the actual number was 40,740. So more than uh, 10,000 vehicles short. The company's share prices fell nearly 4% after the quarterly report was posted. And on another note, as of July 2nd, 2018, Tesla has delivered 28,386 Model 3 cars to customers who had put down a reservation. So only about 400,000 to go, I guess. In February 2018, I did a couple of episodes about Uber, and I've got some updates about that company as well. One of those updates is that Uber is once again allowed to operate in London. You may remember that London had passed an, uh, a ban on Uber, but a judge in the UK overturned the ban, but with several conditions. Uber now has a 15-month license to operate within the city of London, but the company must submit to an independent review looking into policies, procedures, and safety records every six months. And the company must notify UK government officials of any major changes in processes or policies. In New York City, the Taxi and Limousine Commission proposed new rules regarding how much Uber drivers get to take home. The take-home pay, that is, not, not passengers. They're not allowed to take any passengers to their home. That's, that's kind of against the rules. No, the study commissioned by this group stated that Uber driver salaries have remained low despite what it called the rapid growth of the industry. And the rules, if adopted, would require Uber to step in and make up shortcomings in driver earnings. So the threshold is $17.22 per hour. If a driver were to average that... Uh, over the course of a week, everything's fine. But if that if it were to drop below that average in the course of a week, Uber would have to come in and pay to make up the shortfall. Of course, that only applies to times when someone would actually be working on the clock for Uber. It's not just you know, the week in general. And the study said that Uber could lower the amount they take from passenger fares. In other words, the company could take a smaller percentage to help make this possible. And according to the study, the median net hourly earnings in New York was $14.25, which is nearly $3 per hour below the amount the new rules would call for. Nationwide, the company's drivers make an average of $11.77 per hour once you deduct Uber's cut and car expenses. And by the way, I'm saying Uber... But this actually applies to all ride-hailing services. It's not just Uber. It's also Lyft and others. Uh, 
In New York City, by the way, this taxi and limousine commission can actually adopt these rules without any involvement from either the city council or the mayor, because it's New York City and the taxi and limo commission is a powerful entity there. The city is meanwhile considering options to regulate car hailing services in general. Traffic has gotten really bad because there are a lot more people who have started driving for those services. It's actually put more cars on the streets. And there's an ongoing concern that driving for the services doesn't really amount to a living livable wage. And because a lot of the people who are driving for these services come from low-income families, it can actually trap them in a terrible situation in which they have car payments and car insurance, and they're struggling to meet these extra expenses they normally wouldn't have because they're not taking home as much pay as they were originally, not maybe promise is the wrong word, but led to believe they could earn. So it ends up being like working for the company store, right? Like, Everything you earn has to be spent at the company store to buy the stuff you need to keep a living. And because of the prices in the company store, you're never going to earn enough to get free. Same sort of thing here, except in this case, it's not the company store. It's car payments and insurance. Well, I've got some more updates to give you about stuff that's happened since I've had episodes go live. But before I do that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, I could probably do a full episode with an update on what Facebook has been doing since 2011, because that's when Chris Paulette and I originally published the Facebook story, which I think was a one-episode thing, too. So it was, it was a pretty high view of what Facebook's been doing. But I did do a follow-up episode about Facebook's IPO in 2012, and I've done numerous episodes where I've talked about Facebook but I'll probably have to do more episodes about the whole company in the near future, give it the full treatment that I tend to do for companies these days. But for the time being, one story I have to talk about is Mark Zuckerberg's appearances before the U.S. government. So Facebook was already under scrutiny after reports had surfaced that Russian individuals or companies had been funding targeted political advertising aimed to influence the U.S. presidential election back in 2016 and that Facebook had become a platform on which propaganda and fake news was spreading rapidly. It was just becoming a tool to radicalize people and to mislead people. And then came Cambridge Analytica. And I'll have to do a full episode about Cambridge Analytica at some point to really go into all the detail about that company. It's become such a huge news item in 2018. But in short... It was a British company that specialized in the collection and mining of data, specifically for political consulting gigs. It, by the way, has filed for insolvency, which is why I now use the past tense to refer to it. Though the guy who was the director of the company is also the head of eight or so other companies that all are registered to the same physical address. So just because the name Cambridge Analytica is technically, quote-unquote, gone, doesn't mean the game is over. Anyway, during the 2016 election season, the Trump campaign hired Cambridge Analytica as a consulting firm for their campaign. The firm managed to get hold of the private information of more than 80 million Facebook users. The firm claimed it could use this data to identify user political preferences and then target those users to influence voting right, to, to kind of guide people. The firm worked with a professor at Cambridge University to develop an app that Facebook users were encouraged to download. 
And that app, or, or really to just install on Facebook, not even fully download, but that app would scrape user Facebook profiles for information about them and all of their friends. And the U.S. Congress ended up calling Zuckerberg in to explain himself and the company in an effort to find out just what sort of information was used and what Facebook's policies were regarding user privacy and security. So Zuckerberg uh, was under questioning for five hours over in, in Congress, and he didn't shy away from taking responsibility. At one point, he said, quote, we didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry. I started Facebook, I run it, and I'm responsible for what happens here, end quote. He said the company failed to handle the Cambridge Analytica problem correctly. He said Facebook was told that Cambridge Analytica had deleted the data it had collected, and that Facebook failed to follow up to make certain that that was actually the case. And that was a big mistake. He also said the company was hiring a special counsel to investigate all apps that have access to large amounts of user data to make certain that those two were not violating Facebook's policies. So in other words, he was saying the company would now actually enforce the rules they had created. They had created these rules, which sounded good. The idea being that if you create an app for Facebook, you're only supposed to ask for the information you actually need in order for your app to work. And you're not supposed to do anything nefarious with that data. Anything you do plan to use with that data, you're supposed to communicate to the end user. So at least in theory, the end user has the opportunity to say, I'm not really cool with that and, and back out. Uh, although very few of us tend to read all of that stuff. And that's, that's kind of on us. Anyway, Facebook wasn't really enforcing those rules to any great extent. They were just kind of codifying the rules so that Facebook could say, well, you know, that our rules say this, but unless you actually enforce rules, they don't really mean much. Anyway, at one point, Senator Dick Durbin actually asked Zuckerberg if Zuckerberg would be willing to share the name of the hotel he stayed at the night before or who he had messaged earlier that week. And Zuckerberg said he would rather not do that publicly. And Senator Dick Durbin said, quote, I think that may be what this is all about your right to privacy, the limits of your right to privacy, and how much you give away in modern America in the name of connecting people around the world, end quote. So in other words, stating, if you're not willing to give up this basic information and you realize the value of that information and you realize the impact that information could have if it got out to other people, why are you allowing your platform to do this on a broad scale to billions of people, or at least a billion people, since that's how many people Facebook has these days? Well, the story continues to unfold as of the time I'm researching this show. The Washington Post recently said that five people familiar with the matter told journalists that the Department of Justice, the FBI, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Federal Trade Commission were all investigating the Cambridge Analytica matter and Facebook's actions and statements over the last several years. The agencies are trying to figure out how much Facebook employees knew about what was going on and how truthful the communication from Facebook to the authorities has been up to this point. And if things have not all been on the up and up, I expect we're going to see some massive fines. In fact, Facebook could face billions of dollars in fines if these agencies find that the company was culpable in any way to uh, what went on with Cambridge Analytica. 
Now, unrelated to all of that mess, but still a Facebook story is one I wanted to touch on. Uh, Facebook had been pursuing a project called the Aquila program. The goal of that program was to use solar-powered high-altitude drones that would act as a backbone for wireless internet connectivity in places that have limited or no access to the internet. So think of things like the continent of Africa and imagine these drones flying way, way, way up in the atmosphere and they're powered by the sun. They have batteries so that they can continue to fly at night. They recharge during the day and they're able to broadcast uh, Wi-Fi signals across to each other using mostly stuff like lasers actually and then beam that information down to ground stations giving people on the ground internet access. It's a pretty cool idea, but it is no more. The Facebook had only managed to, to do two test flights of its drone technology. The first one ended in a crash, so not a successful test. The second one had a modest success, but still performed below expectations. So Facebook decided to shelve it. Google actually had a similar drone program it was working on. It also has shuttered that effort. But Project Loon, which uses high-altitude balloons rather than drones, is still in development over at Google. Well, that's just a quick series of updates about various stories in the tech world. There are clearly tons more I could have touched on, but I can only do uh, so many per episode. So I'll probably do more of these in the future where I will do like a grab bag of updates about various things going on in the tech world that maybe, again, don't merit a full episode. Uh, Cambridge Analytica will definitely get a full episode, a full treatment from the entire story uh, probably a little bit later once more of these investigations have been wrapped up so I can have kind of a, a beginning, middle, and end to that. But expect that in the future. And if you guys have any suggestions for other topics I should cover on Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, a technology, an issue in tech, maybe there's someone you want me to interview or have on as a guest, make certain to let me know. Send me a message. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is TechStuffHSW. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 